1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 1.
0: The individual believer than all the church epistles. Paul's letters were primarily to the churches. Yes, there's individual instructions, of course, but uh, they're addressed to they're, they're the church epistles. This one is family. And life is real. And it's a battleground, not a playground. And that's what John is going to be dealing with. This is one of the sons of thunder writing you his letter. This isn't some namby-pamby preacher. This is the son of thunder, if you will. And if a person is wrong about Jesus Christ, he's wrong about God. And if he's wrong about God, he's wrong about everything else. That's, That's basically John's logic in this letter. Now, there's seven contrasts of truth and error in this letter. Now, I want you to start noticing the sevens. The light versus the darkness. The Father versus the world. Christ versus the Antichrist in chapter 2. Good works versus evil works in chapter 2. The, the, the Holy Spirit versus error in chapter 4. Love versus pious pretense in chapter 4. The God-born versus all the others in chapter 5. But again, it's sevenfold contrasts we're going to discover as we proce- proceed through this uh, Letter. There are going to be seven tests we're going to look at: the tests of our profession in chapter one and two, tests of our desire in chapter two, tests of doctrine will be called for in chapter two, tests of conduct in chapter two and three, tests of discernment in chapter four, tests of motive in chapter four, and of new birth in chapter five. This is not a uh, a, a, a this is not a uh, introductory course for new believers just getting started. This is heavy stuff. This is serious stuff. So be ready to go deeply into John's uh, 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 narrative here. The the heptatic structure, we have seven traits of the born again. We have seven reasons why this epistle is written. We have seven tests of the Christian's genuineness, seven tests of honesty and reality. We're going to also encounter six liars, not seven, six, and... uh, because lion, lion isn't finished, there's still more lion coming, right? Anyway, so so those are just to give you a feeling. Be sensitive, don't make a big thing of it. Be sensitive to the fact that there is architecture here. The Holy Spirit's got his fingerprints all over this thing. The six liars. We say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice truth, he tells us in this first chapter. If we say that we have not sinned and we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. Second time we get the liar there. Third one, he saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Ouch. Some of these hurt, don't they? But it continues. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist, and denieth the Father and the Son. If if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? Ouch. These things are, uh, these aren't comfortable questions. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made God a liar, because he hath believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So that's John's logic. There it is, six of them. Spiritual fundamentals. We're going to see all-inclusive commandments, that we believe on Jesus Christ and that we love one another. That's going to be hammered home in many, many ways. A profession of love for others, the Father sacrificing his Son, that's love's last word, and perfect love casteth out fear in chapter 4. Okay, thought we'd never get there, didn't you? We're actually at verse 1 of First John. And we're, gonna, we're seeing the first here of three beginnings. There's a beginning in Genesis 1, and there's a beginning in the Gospel of John 1. Here in the Epistle of John, again, he begins at the beginning. That's pretty logical. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, from which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. Notice there's no greeting here. This isn't addressed to a particular church. It isn't addressed to a particular friend. It really becomes somewhat of a sermon in general. There's no greeting here. This is for all God's people everywhere, in effect. And John opens with a strong declaration of the reality of Christ, which he has heard, seen, gazed upon, and handled. That's very palpable. That's very tangible. Heard, he says. Heard is in the present tense. It began in the past, but it still continues. The word heard here is continuing. It's not once and for all. It's continuing. Are we together? Okay. The word seen with physical eyes and uh, the uh, uh, gazed upon and and, uh, contemplated, viewed attentively, intensely studied, contemplated, really focused on, in other words. It's the word from which we get the word theater, by the way. I was commanding your attention, and uh, it's the same word that Israel gazed when it gazed upon the brazen serpent, Numbers 21, that we talked about before, and handled. We actually, he actually handled him. Now that may not be important to you, but from your background, from the previous session about Gnosticism, you understand that's important. The Gnostics said that some of them felt that he wasn't tangible; he was a, a spirit of some kind. He didn't leave footprints when he walked. And we always have, it would be a, probably a question on the final exam. Is there occasion when Christ didn't leave footprints? Absolutely, when he walked on water, right? Okay. Don't let me throw you that on the final. The deity of Christ. All this is a firm rebuttal to the myths of the Gnostics. That's why I put the, we went through all of that in previous sessions. The Gnostics in various styles denied the tangible existence of Christ. Only John uses the title, the Word. Here, the word of life. Jesus is the noun of God. Jesus is the verb of God. Jesus is the adjective of God. He, he Grammatically, can fit all three of those, believe it or not. When you look at Jesus, you see the love of God and the holiness of God. That's a big, big statement. Let that sink in. There were three beginnings. Genesis, we've just seen one of them just then in 1 John. Another one is, in the beginning God created heaven and the earth, and uh, Nachmanides, Maimonides, uh, uh, b- 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 these are writers back in the 12th, 13th century, determined that matter, energy, and time and space all had a beginning. Well the great discovery of 20th century science is the acknowledgement that the universe did indeed have a beginning, that's what leads to the Big Bangs, conjectures and all of that. Well that's exactly what the Bible said in the, uh, all along. It opens the it opened it says that three times in the beginning of the Torah, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, and the beginning of 1 John. Back in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus Christ is coexistent, co eternal, and co equal with God. It's basically what he's saying. The pre existent Christ, that which was already from the beginning. I love the definition of truth. That's when the word and the deed become one. Christ was predicted all through the Old Testament. When he makes his appearance, the word and the deed become one. And so that, and that's the sense in which he is both the noun, the verb, and the adjective of God all at one time. Well, I'd get down to the second verse. Didn't think we'd make it, did you? But we're making progress here. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Manifested. See, Christ is also historically manifested, that is, to appear, make made visible. The Christ of reality is also real experientially. Real Christianity is a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a belief system and not a set of ideas you give intellectual assent with. No, it's a personal experience with our coming King. There's a deadly difference between church membership and salvation. A deadly difference between those two. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Him are not the same thing. And that that is going to lurk through our entire study of First John. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That leads to one of the most important words in the New Testament, the word for fellowship with Him. We encounter one of the greatest words in the Bible, koinonia. That's why we call our our institute the Koinonia Institute. That's why our publisher is Koinonia House. Koinonia, fellowship, close mutual relationship, participation, partnership. It's also the Greek word for fiduciary, putting someone else's interests ahead of your own, sharing something together. Fellowship, key word. It's two dimensional, by the way. It's horizontal, that's fellowship with one another, and it's vertical, fellowship with God the Father. Both are indispensable. There are two families in this world. Jesus said, ye are of your father the devil. He said that to the guys in John 8. They called him illegitimate. (laughs) And he explained to their parentage, back to them. So you can't join the family of God. You've got to be born into it. It's a new creation event that takes place. And uh, nowhere in the Bible does God heal a, a, a heart. He gives you a new one. The heart is desperately, the word is incurably wicked. The heart is incurably wicked, so God gives you a new one. It's a new birth. You are a new creature. Those, Those aren't just idiomatic conveniences. They're very, very fundamental theology. When you're born in the family of God, you become part of the greatest fellowship in the world. And, of course, that's dealt with all through the New Testament epistles. But the astonishing aspect of our fellowship is vertical. That's with God Himself. He talks to you through His Word. You should be carrying on a conversation with Him. You speak to Him in prayer, He'll speak to you in your daily reading. And the dynamics of that are something you have to experience personally. Hearing it preached to you doesn't cut it. you got to experience it. You need to adopt a, a systematic daily reading program. doesn't matter which one, but have one. A systematic daily reading program. And you need to pray intensely daily. And when those things start to couple, then you begin to realize what's going on. Because he'll actually talk to you through your daily readings. And as you get sensitive to that, you'll be astonished at how relevant those readings will be to the issues that you'll be facing each day. He talks to you through his word. You talk to him, of course, through prayer. And uh, that's not a question of giving him your to-do lists. The question of having a fellowship with him, sharing with him your heart. And uh, most of what you need, he knows about it long before you ask. Now, is your communication with God half duplex or full duplex? Half duplex is I talk and then you like if you're on the radio and you say over. It's the other guy's turn. He talks to you. That's half duplex. On a telephone, you're full duplex. You can interrupt each other, can't you? See, that's the difference. Well, is your communication with God half duplex or full duplex? I'll let you think about that that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that we also have fellowship with uh, uh, have fellowship with us, John speaking, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. With us. See, there's a caveat here. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Friendship, yes. Fellowship, no. Yes, you can be friends with unbelievers, of course, but you don't have fellowship with them. That's a different kind of thing. To marry someone who is lost is to commit a Lifetime of grief. I won't ask for a show of hands. Okay. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Simple little verse. John wants your joy to be full, not half full. That your joy may be full. Is your joy full? If it's not, it's something you should deal with. This is one of the seven reasons why this epistle was written. Remember, we had seven of those we listed earlier. Do you have joy today? Most people have just enough religion to make them miserable. That's not what we're talking about here. Let's get be clear on that. Joy. The most joyous truth in our hearts is to know that Jesus Christ is our personal Savior. Our personal Savior. That our home is in heaven and that we have a special reason for living. One of the reasons many Christians have so little joy is that they don't study their Bible. If, you're not, if, you're, if your life isn't full of joy, it won't surprise me if you also end up admitting that you're not in the Word every day. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, digested them. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, can start your pilgrimage to joy. One of the greatest tragedies in our culture is that our youth have been denied the reality by the theories and conjectures that they're bombarded with in their schools and entertainments and so forth. They don't have that reality, that background. Jeremiah says, thy words were found and I did eat them. He digested them. It's interesting in the Jewish culture, the clean animals are the ones that have, they chew their cud. You don't hear just once and swallow it. You ever watch your dog... Eat a piece of leftover steak. It's gone. I was turning. Did you chew that real well? He looks at me innocently? No. No, see, the the the, the, the cud chewing animals are the clean animals. Um, thy words were found and I did eat them, I digested them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. What a privilege. What a privilege. The more you digest, the more you understand. The more you understand, the more you can digest. There's a growth thing going on. In our institute, we have bronze, silver, and gold medallion levels. And the amount, the kinds of materials we can provide at the higher levels, are we're able to do that because by then you've grown to... That's, that's exactly what Paul does in the epistle to Hebrews. He, he scolds them for staying on milk and not the more substantive foods, the stronger foods and stereotrophos, and so on. See, the Bible is the ultimate gourmet meal. You will never exhaust the Bible. The more you study it, the more you'll discover. And the more you discover, the more you... It, it, it's a, it's a an inner thing. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. The Hebrew actually is, thy name is called upon me, what it really says. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Some manuscripts here translate our joy rather than your joy. Doesn't matter, it works both ways. Okay? Either way it's a wonderful truth. Your joy, our joy. Soul-winning also is a fulfilling joy. What joy you have when somebody else's destiny in eternity is changed because of your witness to them. Wow. What a thrill that is as you really if you really understand what's going on there. My wife and I are getting letters from all over the world with our book The kingdom, the power, and the glory. And it's staggering to find the kinds of letters where people describe that their lives are fundamentally changing because of that book, because of what it draws them into. Praise God. Ye are our joy and glory, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Wow, God is light. That was the first quote of God in the the Bible, isn't it? Let light be is what it actually says. But that's also the basis of our fellowship. We need to understand his terms for fellowship. We're going to later discover that uh, that God is also love. That's the basis of our sonship. God is light. The Lord is my light and my salvation, the psalmist tells us. God dwells in unapproachable light. Wow. Wow. First Timothy 6 and all through the Torah of course let light be is God's first quote in the Torah the Shekinah the holy Spirit glory was a cloud of light at night smoke by day light also represents knowledge and the information sciences we have recently discovered there are fundamental uh, there are the fundamental behind everything from particle physics and the DNA to the cosmos itself that the information sciences Light is still the fundamental paradox in physics. Is it a light? Is it a particle? It's only a particle when you're looking at it. Really? Yeah. Anyway, verse 3 of Hebrews, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Wow. How interesting. It's exactly what Scientific American quoted in the June uh, 2005 issue, an article It says, If, if the constants of science is changing, and they apparently are, then that implies that our reality is but a shadow of a larger reality. Well, that's what the Bible's been saying all along. They were not made of things which do appear. And the very particles, subatomic particles of which things are made are smaller than the wavelengths of light themselves. And Psalm 19 deals with that on the cosmic. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork, and so on. So, morally, light represents His holiness. Why? Because light reveals. Light reveals. There is no darkness in God. You know, in the Greek, it's a double negative, but in English, a double negative is a bad, bad grammar. In Greek, a double negative is a way of emphasis. The grammar is a, a different construction there. There is not no darkness in God is what the Greek says, and in the Greek, that's emphatic. It's a double. It's an, an emphasizing. And James says a similar things as every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variables, neither shadow of turning. And the word variableness is in the Greek is the word from which we get parallax. When, thing, when, when light is collinear like in a laser, it implies that the source is at infinity. And so you can take all the properties of light and see them line up with various attributes of God, strangely enough. But I decided I'd get into that too often anyway. I decided not to detour this. But the variable is is a is a, a, parallax or a parallel rays from light, which is mathematically at infinity. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth not. That's in the Gospel, of course. And also in the Gospel, a quote from the Gospel, And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And the word there is a Men love darkness. I thought... Anyway, man, moreover, is unholy. That's the problem. God is holy, man is not. And that is the primary problem all the way through. Secret, I love what Lewis Sperry Schaefer said. Secret sin down here is open scandal in heaven. It's very disturbing to begin to realize in our life that when we sin, that's a public display as far as heaven's concerned. That's disturbing. John 8, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not work in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See, our concept of God will ultimately determine the kind of life we live. If we have a low concept of God, then we will live a low life. Are we surprised as we watch the politicians endure one scandal after another? They're a byproduct of their concept of God. Their worldview won't cut it. If we have a high concept of God, we will be challenged to live a high and noble life. They go together. Look at the kind of leadership of our founding fathers of this country and contrast it with our more recent leadership. Is there a contrast between our founding fathers in terms of their concept of God and the leadership that contaminates our hallways of power today? The unspoken criticisms. Why is it that most Christians are not alert, well-informed, stable, dependable, alive, and so forth? People don't often talk that way outside, but is that an unspoken criticism? It's too prevalent. Why are so many untrustworthy, critical, harsh, repelling, and negative? If God is light, then He can do all this. Why does it seem to happen to only a few? That's disturbing. The world is tired of hearing extraordinary claims from ordinary lives. John says, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. This is the first of three professions that are betrayed by our actions. We say we have fellowship in verse six. If we say that we have no sin in verse eight, if we say we have not sin in verse ten, these are lies. We're living lies. We walk in darkness. What does it mean to walk in darkness? That's your essay question. Take a pad and you know, give me three paragraphs on what does it mean to walk in darkness? No, I well, I don't want to have time or have time to read them. It means to walk in sin and disobedience. It means to practice things that are contrary to holiness and the light of God. It's that simple. Relationship puts us into the family of God. Fellowship is experience in Christ. It permits us the life of the family to shine out through us. God is holy. He cannot and will not tolerate sin. If you are living in sin, God will not have fellowship with you. Habakkuk says in the Old Testament, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. That's an attribute of God. A condition of our fellowship is that it must stand in the light of him, his ways, his terms. When you say you are in fellowship with God, you are saying, I have stepped out of darkness and into the light. That's what Paul deals with in Colossians 1. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. John is attacking a heresy that was rampant in his day It's also rampant in our own day. People are saying that it was possible to be in fellowship with God and to be in sin at the same time. Amos, back in chapter 3, verse 3, famous verse, Can two walk together except they be agreed? It's interesting that when Abraham offered Isaac, when they walked up that hill, the the, the, uh, actual Hebrew says they both of them went together in agreement. Isaac was probably about 30 at the time. He wasn't the little 12-year-old boy you see pictured in the comic books. And he went knowingly. He went knowingly, strangely enough, in Genesis 22. John is saying that if we claim that we are walking in fellowship while walking in darkness, we're living a lie. Among other things, we misrepresent our Lord. And we also misdirect the lost. Wow. Wow what responsibilities we have when we cause others to stumble.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 1, 2, 3 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.